information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day as we wrap up another week. Here's what we'll be talking about today. New plant-based pork products coming onto the market. We're going to hear from the National Pork Producers Council's Dan Kovich, uh, how they're responding to this and pointing out very strongly that pork does not come from a plant. We'll talk about that on today's program. Terry Fleck, Executive Director for the Center for Food Integrity, joins us to uh, give us the results of some research. What are consumers saying about climate change and agriculture? We'll find out. And Dr. John Howe is President of the American Veterinary Medical Association. He'll be joining us to uh, tell us about some important funding in the spending bill passed at the end of last year that uh, certainly will help bring uh, animal care uh, to parts of the uh, Midwest, rural America that have not uh, been able to keep or even attract uh, veterinarians and how some of that funding will help uh, uh, young people in getting started in their careers as veterinarians. So that's coming up on today's program. But first, we're going to talk with Doc, with uh, Dan Hallstrom. Dan is president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. New year, we have the U.S.-Japan trade deal getting underway, and Dan tells us how it's going. Well, I think uh, it's going very well. I mean, we're, we're extremely happy with the uh, implementation starting uh, a few days ago and getting us on a level playing field with our global competitors. And, uh, you know, it's our largest market. Um, you know, we're number one by far, uh, just under uh, right around $3.7 billion in, in trade between beef and pork combined. And uh, But as you know very well, uh, the last uh, year and a half or so, uh, we've been losing a little bit of share because of the the uh, disparity with the inbound duties. And uh, this gets us on a level playing field from a duty standpoint and uh, and also some of the sanitary issues as well. So, yeah, we're very excited going forward. Um, a lot of optimism. Uh, and I would say a lot of optimism across all major sectors within within Japan, retail, food service, convenience store sector, et cetera. How quickly do we see the impact of this trade deal? Quickly, or, or will it take time? Well, I think um, I think both. I think some sectors we're going to see it quickly. Um, you know, uh, I look at the beef sector in particular, where we were at a thirteen percent disadvantage vis-a-vis Australia, and uh, I think in the retail sector and some of the other sectors, uh, that that rebound could be fairly quickly. Uh, we were in Japan in December, right before Christmas, uh, and met with the trade. And uh, and like I said, uh, the, the incremental buying has already begun. Of course, we, we don't see it yet in the stats because we're a little bit delayed there to, to see it. But we know that business is ramping up in some sectors already. Other sectors, it could take a while. Um, but, but nevertheless, uh, you know, the, uh, the tailwinds that are going to come with this agreement It'll be positive all the way around eventually, I think, for both uh, beef and pork in most of the sectors. I was going to ask, will one of those sectors perhaps see a a more immediate benefit uh, than the other? Um, You mean between beef and pork? Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, I think uh, think beef will probably be maybe a little quicker because it's a much more dramatic um, difference. Um, but that being said, on pork, processed pork, seasoned ground pork, there's immediate benefit in those sectors as well, uh, to the tune of uh, you know 6% difference, uh, whereas we we're looking at a 13% difference uh, on the beef side. One other thing I should mention, Mike, too, is that uh, the timing really uh, couldn't be better for this. Uh, of course, we wish it would have been sooner, but as it is, the timing is pretty good because uh, we have a lot of things going on in Japan at the moment, uh, not the least of which is uh, increased uh, tourism. Uh, and uh, there will be uh, increased tourism above the normal amount later this year because we have the Olympics, Summer Olympics in Japan, which will be a lot of uh, foreign visitors coming in um, You know, for that, obviously. So this is a real food service opportunity as well on both beef and pork. So that that's really incremental to what we are seeing as, normal growth over there which is already large in and of itself 
We're talking with Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, about the U.S.-Japan trade deal that uh, is now uh, taking effect in Japan. Uh, this is phase one, right? There's more to come on this. Yeah, this is phase one, which uh, which uh, immediately benefits agriculture, which is a really good thing for, for us in terms of timing. But, yeah, there could be more to come on a, on a broader scale as well involving automobiles and other other industries. So, uh, yes, uh, part one of two, but I'm glad that we're in part one. <laughs> what is the Japanese consumer reaction to our U.S. meat products there? Oh, we're... I think, um, you know, all things aside, uh, we're the gold standard in terms of perception and and uh, and quality, uh, and, and safety is a given. Uh, I hesitate to bring up safety, but safety is important, too. But quite honestly, to do business in Japan, safety is just a given. It, it, it's, it's a requirement to do business. So beyond that, you know, our reputation is very good in terms of uh, high-quality uh, product, grain-fed, luxurious, rich taste. Uh, this is something that uh, is well ingrained in, in the consumer in Japan. And, uh, and like I said, we are, we're welcome to, uh, to help expand. And, and consumption, beef and pork consumption, is, is growing as well. So these are all uh, factors that line up very well to, uh, to uh, benefit the U.S. Uh, ag industry in 2020. And what about their economy? We, we know that how our economy is going impacts especially, I think, uh, beef demand here domestically. What's the situation in Japan as far as uh, uh, their ability to purchase our, our meat products? Well, the economy on the surface maybe doesn't look as robust as some economies, but, uh, but quite frankly, it's a very wealthy demographic in Japan, a wealthy demographic, the largest savings rate per capita in the world. Um, so you have a wealthy uh, demographic that wants to, and they're willing to and able to pay for quality. So I think in this regard, um, it's a very good match or a very good fit for U.S. products. We don't want to be the lowest cost uh, item on the street. We want to we want to charge a fair price, and our price could be higher. But for the quality, we think it's very fair, and uh, and and this is where you know the. Uh, the match with the Japanese consumer is so good because they do have the spending power to pay for the quality that they want. So this is this is the good news. So we'll look forward to uh, what we hope will be a very good year and years to come in our meat exports to Japan. Sounds like we're off to a good start with the new U.S.-Japan trade deal. We've been talking with Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, thanks for the update. My pleasure. Uh, anytime. All right, look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. Coming up next, Dr. Dan Kovich with the National Pork Producers Council as the pork industry responds to new plant-based pork products coming on to the market and some strong words from the, uh, the leadership, the CEO and founder of Impossible Foods. We'll talk about that next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, joining us now is Jonathan Kappas, Assistant Professor of Agricultural and Consumer Economics, University of Illinois. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. I've noticed more and more of these payments are starting to to get some scrutiny and in some cases criticism uh, from various uh uh, areas as uh, people look more closely at them, who's getting them, the amount of them, things like that. So this is going to be a story we'll be talking about for a while. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt you put that kind of uh, that kind of cash infusion into the countryside. There's there's no doubt it's going to help, and and it certainly is going to help at a time that you know farmers have been struggling for multiple years. But really, the the trade and tariff uh, moves by this administration has made it, you know, that much more difficult. And so, you know, there's, there's, nobody discounts the fact that these will help, and these are helping at a time of, uh, of, of some real challenges financially and economically. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Hey, it's me, your cell phone. We need to talk about something, something serious. I know you love me. I know you like using me wherever you are, but I feel like this isn't working out when you're driving. 
I know you may think that it's possible to focus both on me and the road, but I just don't feel the same way. I think we should spend time away from each other when you're driving. It's for the best. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, Impossible Foods has announced that they are adding pork and sausage to its lineup of plant-based products and that they are continuing to test other products, including bacon. And they have come out and said that their mission is to completely replace animals in the global food system. Here with a response from the pork industry is Dr. Dr. Dan Kovich, who is the Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Dan, thank you for joining us. How do you respond to this? Well, thanks, Mike. I, you know, they say that uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but uh, I think this is taking things quite a bit too far. You know, I, if we look at, uh, you know, what pork is, pork is a very specific known quantity. It, it comes from a pig. It has to come from a pig. You can't make pork out of anything else. You certainly can't make pork out of soybeans. I mean, granted, you can feed those soybeans to a pig and make pork, but the pig is an important step in there. So, you know, we obviously feel very strongly that this is very uh, inappropriate for the Impossible Foods Company to come out with an impossible pork. Now, we we have seen this. The dairy industry has fought this for a long time with imitation uh, dairy products in the marketplace. Beef is dealing with this as well. Uh, wh- what is the um, the plan of action by the pork industry? Do you do you want to address it with the FDA? A, a possible lawsuit over the use the, of the name pork? Uh, how do you think this will play out? Well, we're currently exploring all of those options um, and, and looking again at what we need to do to protect that term pork. I think that if we look at, you know, if we look at the way the English language is used, some words are more specific than others, right? If we look at the word burger, for example, that historically has been applied to, to different types of food, not saying it's appropriate to use it here. But if we look at the word pork, again, that is highly specific. There is no other usage, at least in the food space, for that word. It is the flesh of a pig, and, and, and that's the only thing that, that pork can be. So when it comes to this specific term pork we need to protect that we need to plant a flag that you know that is a known quantity and to call anything else pork is not appropriate we're talking with dr dan kovich director of science and technology for the national pork producers council now uh, it seems that one of the areas for whether it's beef or pork or whatever to really respond here to consumers is about 
what your product is and the, the, the nutritional aspects, the health aspects, things like that. Now we see where uh, the uh, officials at Impossible Foods are claiming that their pl- product, their plant-based pork, would have less calories, less total fat, less saturated fat, zero cholesterol, higher iron. Uh, will you challenge some of those uh, claims on a nutritional and health aspect? Well, I think absolutely. I mean, first of all, of course, we haven't seen this product. I personally haven't tasted it. They tend to keep these things very close to hand until they release it. But I think it is a very important point that, you know, pork is a very complex product and has a very distinctive nutrient profile. Um, you know, things such as uh, you know, the fat and protein are important components of a diet. And again, these products, although they seek to mimic the taste and texture, uh, perhaps of our product, are not going to have the same nutrient profile. I mean, this is a highly processed food. They've already indicated that, for example, it is much higher in salt than pork. It's just, it's a different thing. And to try and claim that it is pork is, is not appropriate. You know, it's, it, it is misleading to consumers, whether they realize it's plant-based or not, um, as to what sort of nutrition they're going to get from the product. But also, again, just basically, pork has a strong standard of identity. This is not pork, regardless of, of its nutrient um, profile or, or any other parameters. Pork comes from a pig. As these products become more and more uh, prevalent in the marketplace, how concerned are you about consumer confusion as to what they're purchasing? Again, I think it's important to recognize that that consumer confusion can come in different ways, not just do they know whether they're getting pork or something else that's claiming to be pork, but also, you know, what is that going to do in terms of nutrition that they're providing for their family? Do they understand what that difference is? And are the claims that these companies making supportable? And again, I think it's just the critical starting point is to say that, no, you cannot call this pork. This is a soy-based product. You need to come up with a different term for it, despite any claims as towards its similarity towards our product. Well, these products are getting a lot of attention now, but along with that comes more scrutiny, and they'll have to stand up to that scrutiny, won't they? Absolutely. You know, I think transparency is something that, you know, we all want across the food industry. Certainly as a pork industry, we are trying to be as transparent we can about how we raise animals, how our product is produced. Um, and, and these companies are going to need to do the same thing to be clear about, again, how highly processed these products are, what actually goes into making them, um, and, you know, be able to back up any claims as to their nutrition. They're going to need to do all that. But, again, I want to go back to they're going to need to come up with their own name for this product because mm-hmm. it's not pork, and that's going to be the, that's the first step that they need to do. Yeah, that's a key point. Now, I think the other thing, it's one thing for new products to come into a marketplace. Hey, it, it, that's our... That's our system here. So you know, if as long as everyone competes fairly, uh, there's a place for for a new product. But uh, I think for the livestock industry, to, when you look at what's being said now by the uh, CEO and founder of Impossible Foods, when they're making statements like, "Our mission is to completely replace animals." in the global food system and making predictions that by the year 2035 animals as a food production technology are going to be history well that's that's a whole different ball game now it when they come out and make it very clear what their intent is well you know they, they certainly can can market themselves to to their investors however they want i think that's a pretty uh, a bold claim. I mean, you know, we stand by our product. What we want is a level playing field. We know that our product can compete in the marketplace, and we know that people like pork. And we also know that we can produce it well, sustainably. You know, again, competition is fine. We just need a level playing field, and we need respect for the laws, the tradition of food naming nomenclature in this country. We can't have people using terms for a product that just simply is not that product. 
because obviously, and the, and the dairy industry has been dealing with this for years and years, obviously there is value in the name of milk or dairy or in this case pork, or these uh, these companies uh, wouldn't be trying to use that same name to get the benefit from the from the traditional value that uh, your industry has uh, has built up over the years. Exactly. People like pork, people love bacon, those are things that people want to emulate that. We get that. But again, pork can only come from a pig. End of story. Yeah, just like, uh, you know, you don't get milk from an almond or something like that. So, but, and this will be the challenge for for agriculture is to get that message out. It's also the the opportunity to tell, in, in this case, uh, the pork story. Exactly, exactly. It's, you know, again, we need to, to protect those. And again, the term pork is, our, you know, is incredibly specific. I don't think there's really any disagreement in the in the food agriculture space as to what pork is, what pork means. Now we're getting to the point where this is a very specific term that is being usurped, and and you know, we obviously at Porkville, the the line needs to be drawn here. And I think the challenge will be too. Um to get that message out about what your product really is and how it's produced because there are going to be some people that uh, think they're saving the world or doing something to help uh, benefit the environment by purchasing these project products so it's going to be important to tell the uh, the complete story about in in your case pork products and pork production exactly and you know we do have at pork we have our we care initiative i mean we are very open to talking to anybody about how we produce pigs how we're good stewards of the animal, the environment. That's a story that we are eager to share with people uh, because pork is absolutely something that people can feel good about eating, um, and, and they need to know exactly what they're getting when they yeah. buy pork. There are no pork plants, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are buildings, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, yeah. There, you cannot... You cannot Absolutely. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah. So yeah, well, a whole new, a whole new uh, term for pork plants. I guess we'll have to be watching that there are no <laughs> pork plants to to eat from for sure. In, in that way. All right, Dan. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. It's a story to watch. Dr. Dan Kovich, Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to phoenix our job is to unlock those jobs and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local goodwill here's how we do it when you donate to goodwill we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community so just by teaming up with goodwill you help create jobs and isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band goodwill donate stuff create jobs find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org a message from goodwill and the ad council Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. An hour into the trading day on Friday, and corn futures recovering some of yesterday's losses. The grains bounced overnight with corn in particular, making up ground after posting a 3.1% loss on Thursday. After a wave of pessimism on the markets following the signing of the U.S.-China trade deal, with some traders unhappy with China's perceived wiggle room around making large agricultural purchases. Some traders say the downward movement may have been a little bit overdone. Both the momentum and trend indicators turned lower after yesterday's sharp price break. It could seem to indicate that rallies need to be sold, backed up by the weak fundamentals in the corn market. March corn up five and three quarters an hour into the day at 381 and a quarter. May up five and a half at 388 Soybeans, March contract down a quarter of a cent, 923 and three quarters. 
made and a half at 937. In the wheats, Minneapolis March up four and three quarters at 555. Chicago Wheat March up two and three quarters, 568. Kansas City Wheat March up a penny and a half at 486 and a quarter. For livestock futures at the Merck, cattle futures continue to trend lower while lean hog futures are a dime to 60 cents higher. February hogs up 60 at 67.47, April up 40 at 74.17. Live cattle, February down 57 at 125.55. We saw cash cattle sales in the south yesterday on a live basis, mostly 124, fully steady with last week's weighted average. Feeder cattle, March contract down 85 at 143.97. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 52 points. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction. Plus, the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs running or not. Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today, 800-745-3327, 800-745-3327. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, as the debate continues over climate change, what will the impact be on agriculture? Let's talk about it with Terry Fleck, Executive Director for the Center for Food Integrity. Terry, thank you for joining us. Uh, What is your research showing about the, the discussion, the conversation that's going on right now about climate change and how uh, agriculture is viewed in this debate. Well, thanks, Mike, for uh, for asking and having me on. This is uh, just one of those conversations that uh, members of the center were curious about where the conversation was around climate change, particularly as we came to a close of uh, 2019. And uh, so just by way of quick background, we use a research tool called digital ethnography where it allows us to uh, explore a lot of different topics and trends in real time, looking at millions of consumer interactions online uh, that help us understand a little bit about uh, their motivations, who they are, how mature the trend is. So what we were curious about was what is being discussed at the current time, and in particular, we had a little more refined objective to to try to boil down to what is the conversation around causes and solutions. Uh, In particular, are consumers linking climate change to the production and consumption of animal proteins like beef and poultry, and whether or not consumers are really associating a local food movement to an improvement or a solution to climate change. Uh, What was probably not surprising to us, uh, particularly given the attention to sustainability issues, is most of the conversations throughout the the past year now were really mired in this whole debate on whether climate change exists. So when when we were looking at the climate change term, we really saw two basic camps, those that were ardent believers in climate change and those that were calling those ardent believers alarmists and uh, not being attentive to uh, to the longer-term view. Um, a little surprising, probably about one in four of, uh, of adult Americans were involved somewhat in that debate online, just over 52 million uh, consumers. What was interesting, though, to, uh, to us was the predicted shift in the conversation that's likely to take place over the next 12 to 24 months. And in particular, 
we see two different camps uh, emerging fairly strongly. Uh, one camp that wants to discuss the causes of climate change, uh, and another camp uh, wanting to talk about solutions. So we're, we're seeing growth in both of those arenas um, uh, to, to probably well over 80 million Americans uh, being involved in either this, of these conversations uh, one way or the other as we move into 2020. Well, we've seen uh, um, a little. We've seen we've seen a couple of things, Terry. Recently, uh, uh, a Hollywood uh, uh, awards show announcing they weren't going to serve meat because of their concerns over greenhouse gas emissions and and climate change, and of course the ongoing push for some of these imitation meat products in the marketplace and and uh, there seems to be a uh, a thinking for some of the people supporting that that they're they're helping to save the planet somehow by by uh, by uh, consuming those products uh, is this a sign of things to come you think is this uh, debate uh, ratchets up uh, in the next few months I, I do Mike I think it is uh, the sign of things to come you're, you're quite right we're seeing people uh, involved in the conversation that want to bring about change so they're they're taking personal action they want to they want to be informed they want to tell others they want to protect resources the other thing, though, that we are seeing is that they are looking to science and innovation to help provide some solutions. Uh, so when we talk about or when we look at the, the, uh, the conversation around causes, it is associated uh, with carbon-related topics, CO2 emissions, uh, things of this nature, burning fossil fuels, greenhouse gases. Uh, and those that are looking for solutions are, again, looking at how do we reduce emissions, how do we reduce greenhouse gases, um, and, and there is uh, some of that conversation, particularly around, uh, around improving uh, some of these uh, areas, uh, really talking around uh, what do we change, and some of that is around conversations on cattle farming, reducing meat consumption, industrialization, overfishing, those are all very prominent topics today. We're talking with Terry Fleck, Executive Director for the Center for Food Integrity. Terry, I wonder, though, is this discussion, how will it be driven, by emotion or by fact? And we've seen before emotion and, and fear uh, drive the GMO uh, debate in this country. And now I wonder if that takes place in this one as well, because you can. we've seen numbers and statistics showing that uh, the, the percentages of greenhouse gas emissions by agriculture are very small in, in the total picture, but yet it seems like a lot of people want to focus on that and ignore some of the bigger contributors. Uh, so will facts win this argument, or is this going to be a, an emotional argument and debate? No, I think facts will eventually win the day, Mike. That's not to say that emotions won't begin the conversation, but when we look at the profile of those that are involved in the conversation, uh, just a couple points on this one. It, it tends to be slightly more female than male. You're going to find that well over 60, 65 percent of those conversing about this are going to be younger, 18 to 44 years of age, middle class, uh, most likely single or married without children are the ones that are talking the most about this. One of the interesting aspects of that audience means that these are are information-seeking consumers, so they crave credible information from sources they can trust, which then gives us the opportunity to engage the conversation. And that's really, I think, where the opportunity is for, uh, for food and agriculture is now's a great time to initiate the conversations about the kinds of things that we are doing, providing balanced information, providing third-party studies that give them a forum to engage, as you say, around the facts, and then suggest ways that they can make a difference. There is a sizable portion of the country, of the population, that is open-minded on this and actually seeking good, accurate information uh, and haven't already made up their minds on it? Correct, correct. Yeah, that's why we're seeing such great growth in, in our predictive tool uh, around those who want to discuss causes and solutions. Of course, uh, part of the solution is focusing in on what are the true causes, and, and this is where third-party credible information will be most helpful around that. 
and then uh, attend, you know, uh, uh, directing conversations toward let's talk about solutions, about what can be done to help this out, what can be done for you to to uh, uh, to do your part in, uh, in in being part of that change. So, um, again, this is where particularly in food and ag, where we talk about where we're reducing the carbon footprint, where we're attentive uh, uh, and knowledgeable about greenhouse gases, uh, uh, you know, calling attention to our own house, making sure our own house is in order, not necessarily pointing the finger at a bunch of other people, but helping people move, as you say, from the emotion to the facts uh, in the conversation. As I think the concern for agriculture is that... uh agriculture won't get credit for reducing its carbon footprint and the strides that have been have been taken and, and the improvements that have been made and instead we're going to get a lot of heavy-handed regulation coming down from uh, the federal government uh, you know uh, on agriculture uh, that's that's not really warranted I think that's the concern many have yeah and that's where we're also seeing uh, many of the commodities and ag groups starting conversation with Congress around climate smart practices, uh, issues of soil conservation, soil health, alternative crops, and uh, doing their part to encourage and continue to encourage the change. Um, but you're right, it, those, uh, those of us that have been involved with the change for several years need to do our part to continue to let people know that this is continuous improvement. We have made great strides and great changes and uh, certainly looking forward to science and innovation helping us do even more. We're so driven by social media, and sometimes social media can be misleading as far as people's, uh, the majority of people's thoughts or feelings. So uh, is there a concern that uh, a minority of voices could sound bigger than they are in driving uh, you know, regulation or, or changes on agriculture? Yeah, that's always the concern. And again, as, as we looked at, uh, at this research piece, looked at who's involved in the conversation now, fifty, little over 52 million consumers, where that's going to be over the next 12 to 24 months, which is just over 88 million. You know, again, this, these are online conversations, so a lot more people getting involved in that topic, which is why you know we have to be in the in the social channels uh, on a regular basis uh, being active in those conversations being visible in those conversations so uh, again it's just motivation on our part to uh, to be there to be talking about our story and again to be focusing primarily on that that younger audience uh, talking about how science and innovation uh, are really uh, fostering change and development for the future yeah, and very important to be involved in those discussions and conversations because they are going to be taking place, that's for sure, on this topic of climate change. Very interesting uh, research and findings, Terry, and uh, some thoughts as we move forward on this. Thank you very much for being with us. You're welcome, Mike. Thanks. Take care. Terry Fleck, Executive Director for the Center for Food Integrity. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell 
everything's changed. It is tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Time is money, right? And money? Well, it's the whole reason we go to work every day. Cenex Premium Diesel protects both. With a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, Cenex Roadmaster XL helps your entire fuel system stay up and running, so you can count more profits and steer clear of losses. Now don't spend all that free time in one place, unless it's the highway. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. With the start of every new year, you always have new possibilities. The new year is upon us, and Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network, has plenty of news to be excited about. Your host, Mike Adams of Adams on Agriculture, has expanded the daily conversation into new geographies around the country. Mike has new online content, too. Navigate on your computer, smartphone, or tablet to AmericanAgNetwork.com. Under the Adams on Agriculture tab, you can listen to Mike's latest shows and also catch up on Mike's new weekly commentary. Adams on Agriculture is also available as an Alexa skill on your Amazon device. Adams on Agriculture with Mike Adams, presented by the American Ag Network. We're looking forward to new conversations with you throughout the year with information farmers and ranchers need to know. Check it out. Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Borden Dairy Company is the second major milk producer to file for bankruptcy in the last two months, joining Dean Foods, the largest U.S. dairy company. Now, Borden's does still plan to uh, uh, stay in business, but Dean Foods intends to sell its assets. And what, what's behind it, and what does it mean moving forward? Joining us now is John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, thanks for joining us. When you have major brand names like this filing for bankruptcy, it has to, has to wave some red flags, doesn't it? You're exactly right. This does raise some red flags when you look at what happened with, with Dean Foods in 2019 and now uh, with Borden in 2020. It, it really makes you think that, that dairy may be, uh, at an inflection point, when you think about the Class One market and, and where the the trends have been uh, for fluid milk sales over the last few decades. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Do you like what you're hearing on Adams on Agriculture? Continue that conversation, important to agriculture, on Twitter. You can follow the talk show at AOA underscore talk show or follow Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Ag. Here you will receive real-time highlights of the show and see what others are buzzing about in the industry. Adams on Agriculture hopes to meet you online. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, joining us now is the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, Dr. John Howe. We want to look back at the spending bill that was passed at the end of last year and what that means for um, veterinarians across the country. Dr. Howe, thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. I know you were happy with that spending bill and some of the things in it. Uh, give us some uh, details how it affects veterinarians and, and animal care across the country. Sure. 
were certainly very happy to see Congress come together you know, in a bipartisan manner and pass that spending package. And besides preventing a government shutdown, uh, which ensures more than 3,000 federal veterinarians uh, who get to perform mission-critical tasks like food safety inspection, meatpacking plants, which ensured now that they're going to be able to continue performing their jobs. So <clears throat> it, the agreement provides the certainty necessary that's needed for veterinary programs and agencies that support animal agriculture. They can continue to now plan and uh, do work to promote you know, public health and animal health. There were some things uh, specifically as far as some programs that will help increase access to veterinary care in rural America, wasn't there? Yes, there were uh, particular importance to veterinary medicine. We were happy to see Congress provide $8 million in funding for the Veterinary Medicine Loan Repayment Program and $3 million in funding for the Veterinary Services Grant Program. Both of those are very important to helping increase access to food animal veterinarians in rural areas. Which remains a real challenge also, in some parts, right? It does. It, it really does. It's, uh, some areas it's very difficult and it's, uh, it's almost it's cost prohibitive. It's difficult for rural veterinarians and food animal veterinarians in some rural areas because there's not quite enough business to make it as just a food animal veterinarian. So you kind of have to do a little bit of everything. And But there's, like in our practice, I'm in northern Minnesota, and I've been a mixed animal practitioner for 43 years. And we've had, you know, we have clients, beef clients that are, you know, 90 miles away. And we're the only ones that would be able to service them. So it's very difficult when they have emergencies, you know, to go zooming up in the middle of the night, 90 miles away in northern Minnesota. And uh, we only have like three dairies left, but they're far away also. So those those things are needed, and it's, it's difficult. So if we can get somebody in, if it's a shortage area, then a veterinarian can get some partial money, some like 25000 a year to pay back on their student loans because, as you probably know, uh, student debt is, is really astronomical for veterinarians. Um, the average veterinarian uh, comes out of veterinary school with a... Average debt of close to 180,000, and uh, it's just the last four years. If they finance the first four, they could be at two, three hundred thousand dollars in debt. So, a veterinarian coming out of school carrying that debt, even if they want to be in rural America, they may, you know, the the lure of going somewhere uh, with a you know a better financial situation may be too too great for them to resist, and. Uh, then rural America loses out on another veterinarian. Yes, and that, that's happening. So in this spending bill, we also saw a million-dollar increase in funding for the U.S. Department of Agriculture Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, you know, USDA APHIS, for the Center for Bio- Veterinary Biologics, and a $7.2 million increase in funding for the USDA APHIS Diagnostic Program. And those programs are both very important for continuing our critical supply of vaccines and supporting disease detection and prevention efforts. So these programs are also providing support for the National Bio and Agro Defense Facility, or NBAF, which is soon to be completed. And that's going to help strengthen our nation's ability to grapple with accidental or intentional introduction of high-consequence animal diseases such as African swine fever. And let's talk about that. Uh, In your perspective, uh, tell us about the efforts to keep African swine fever out of the U.S., and uh, is there more that can be done? Uh, There is. I think there's always more. I think one good thing, uh, back in August, the U.S. and Canada and Mexico formed the foundation for a new North American-specific strategy on African swine fever. And as recent events have shown us, by all the spread of it in Southeast Asia and everywhere, um, it's demonstrated that ASF is an international disease that knows no borders, and it can move rapidly from one country to the next. So it requires a real co- coordinated international response to ensure that our co- that we have collective readiness for for ASF. And the meeting had a special session 
and how, how, how they could minimize the impact should it be introduced to this continent. And it'll help guide ASF-related coordination and cooperation between our three countries. And they covered um, several things. They covered, uh, talked about comprehensive disease surveillance and then surge capacity. That is always an important issue. So it's helping ensure that labs and people are ready to respond. For example, labs of Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., they could work together to harmonize their diagnostic efforts. And then you have to have contingency plans. And then you have to find out how to mitigate the risks associated with wild pigs uh, through activities such as control programs and surveillance, hunter education, farm biosecurity. I talked about border security, including inspection and control measures, and business continuity with risk-based movements of animal and animal products. And I was in China a couple of months ago, and I was at the African Swine Fever Conference there, besides some other things I was at. And it was amazing to me. Spain brought up how they, it took them 20 years to get rid of this disease, but they talked about how they did it. And China has all this uh, facts about how long the virus can last in different things. Frozen meat, it can last a 1,000 days. Wow. Dry cured sausages, six months. Smoked deboned meat, 30 days. 11 days in feces, 105 days in the offal. And ticks, so there's a, a tick that they have. So that's why we have to keep it out, but be prepared in case yes. it ever does get here. Dr. Howe, thank you very much. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr. John Howe, President of the American Veterinary Medical Association. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Sometimes life is wonderful. And sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. 